I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophet of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. Peace and love, everyone. This is Manny Faces, co-producer, audio editor, and host of the multiple award-winning Newsbeat podcast, where we remix journalism, mixing together high-level social justice reporting and music, often with original lyrical contributions from our hip-hop artist-journalist friends. I'm also the audio editor behind the highly acclaimed Unfucking the Republic podcast, a.k.a. UNFTR, a brilliant and funny progressive political podcast examining our nation's socioeconomic landscape, how we got here, and how we can hopefully help unfuck it all. I'm also the creator and host of Hip Hop Can Save America, a show which examines the innovative, inspiring, and sometimes surprising use of hip hop music, culture, and spirit to help improve society and uplift humanity. Today, I want to welcome all audiences to this very special episode of Newsbeat as we speak at length with the inimitable Dr. Cornell West, who has recently added to his already formidable CV by declaring his bid for President of the United States, running for the Green Party nomination. This is the second time we interviewed Dr. West. The first was as a voice in our award-winning episode, Why We Riot, Institutionalized Inequality, Racism and Oppression, where we examine the history of civil unrest and rebellion in our country's history. For this wide-ranging interview, we covered a lot of ground, and we were really grateful for the time Dr. West gave us. I think he kind of likes us. But we made sure not to fan out too much, and I think we asked some really important questions about his stance on several issues important to both Newsbeat and UNFTR listeners, including dismantling systems of oppression, uplifting the poor and working class, ending America's military-industrial complex, and abolishing poverty, homelessness, and prisons. So, here's the full interview in all its glory. Do note that if you want to, you could watch it instead. We have a full video version of the interview as well over at newsbeat.substack.com. That's our free newsletter where we drop full episodes, bonus content, and more. And no matter how you found this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Newsbeat, Unfucking the Republic, and Hip Hop Can Save America on your favorite podcast app. All right, here it is. This is our interview with Dr. Cornell West. Dr. Cornell West, brother Cornell West, how are you, sir? Brother, I'm blessed to be in conversation with both you, Brother Manny, but also Brother Rashid and Brother Chris. That's right. In the language of John Coltrane, forces for good in the world. Indeed. We appreciate you greatly. The last time we crossed paths, we visited you up in Harvard, and uh, we had you con- uh, contribute to our to an episode of this podcast, the Newsbeat podcast, uh, called Why We Riot, in which we uh, explored the history of civil unrest and uh, rebellion in American history. And uh, your voice was uh, uh, very well received and appreciated. We actually won s- several awards for that episode. So we thank you for that contribution in the past. Congratulations. I didn't realize that my beloved wife, Anna Hitch, was showing me the uh, the cover that you start off with Brother Martin King, right? Mm-hmm. Right is the language of the unheard. And you yeah. all just took off from there, took it to higher height. Mm-hmm. Indeed. So again, we thank you for this and let's get right into it. Uh, Rashad, I think uh, you'll kick us off on the uh, on the question front. Let's go. Yeah. All right, Dr. West. So you are ramping up your presidential bid for the Green Party nomination. Um, You've obviously been involved in politics for most of your life. You've been very outspoken about corporate greed, corruption, the marginalization of so many groups of people, American hegemony, imperialism and the underlying rot of American empire. So, uh, Dr. West, 
why were you inspired to run for president at this moment in time? Mm, oh, my dear brother, Rashid, Rashid, all right? Rashid. Yeah, Rashid, you got it. Get it right. Yes, Rashid. No, I want to get it right, though. But, but no, I just felt that, um, you know, I come from a tradition of Black folk whose anthem is Lift Every Voice. And I didn't see enough voices at the national level and when it comes to expressing the presidential politics that was really trying to tell the truth and pursuing justice in the way in which people are, especially the way in which the masses of folk in the, in the empire and in the country deserve. And so I figured, well, good God almighty, I might as well raise my voice. I've been trying to raise it in other contexts. Uh, but the calling is still the same, you know. I mean, electoral politics is just one vehicle and one vessel, really. The calling is still the same in terms of committed to truth and justice. And uh, it's just a matter of allowing the tradition that shaped me to spill over into electoral politics. And I figured given the, the depths of the uh, decay and the uh, decrepitude of the empire, that I might be able to be a force of good in the short time that I'm here, though, man. That's really what it comes down to. Thank you. And, and Dr. West, um, now, since announcing your bid, you've been very critical of the, quote, corporate duopoly, as you call it, and the corrupt nature of our overall political system. Um, now, given that both major parties are so subordinate to Wall Street, do you think it's even possible to break down um, what we describe as this deeply entrenched oligarchic structure, and how would you how would you even begin to do so? Yeah, that's, that's a wonderful question because it's been like that for a long time, but I think the rot is becoming more and more apparent and undeniable. And when people look at the Republican Party, they see the escalating neo-fascism, and they might have a candidate on the way to jail. And they hardly have anybody else to replace him. They look at the Democratic Party, they see uh, uh, an aging centrist who has very little vision, very little energy, very little zest. And therefore, there's large numbers of our fellow citizens who are profoundly dissatisfied with the choices that they have to make. And so it opens the way to some real possibilities. We don't know exactly what the possibilities are, but there are live options for the first time in a long time. There being third-party candidate that can seize the imagination of a significant number of fellow citizens and maybe be able to, to move us in a better direction, a more progressive direction. And for me, it's a direction to put poor people, poor and working people at the very center of our vision and our analysis, really. Uh, yeah, interesting. On on that note, uh, the three of us here uh, underwent something of a political awakening or transformation during Occupy Wall Street. We watched as the state leveraged all its resources to effectively dismantle an attempt to silence protesters, anyone yeah. standing in the way, really. Since then, the wealthiest people in America have only gotten richer and inequality has worsened. Uh, millions of people are in deep poverty or homeless. Uh, the majority of Americans live paycheck to paycheck. What I guess, is your plan to address the economic challenges of our time? And is that any way similar to the Economic Bill of Rights uh, touted by the Poor People's Campaign, for instance? Well, I mean, I so deeply resonate with my dear brother, William Barber, and my dear sister, Elizabeth Thea Harris. Uh, the Poor People's Campaign, for me, is always a starting point. It has to do with the legacy of not just Martin Luther King Jr., but Fannie Lou Hamer and Marion Wright Edelman as well. 
And for me, see, I try to look at the world, look at any empire, look at any society through the lens of the least of these. I mean, as a revolutionary Christian, I'm deeply tied to the 25th chapter of Matthew. What you do unto the least of these, you do unto me. So that means you start in the prisons, you start in the hoods and the barrios, you start in the reservations, you start in working class communities, you start with trans and gay brothers and lesbian sisters, any group of the human family that's catching hell who are most vulnerable to arbitrary power. And uh, that means then in a fundamental way that there's got to be some voices, both individual and institutional, that can touch on that suffering that you're talking about. I mean, how could it be you got 1% of the population on 90% of the wealth and there not be a major movement against grotesque wealth inequality? The three individuals have wealth from coming to the bottom, 50%, 160 million fellow citizens, not a major movement against wealth inequality. Well, there's got to be a way in which there's both an awakening and a reckoning of this so people can begin to see what's going on feel more deeply the hurt and then believe something can be done about it. So that I've always conceived what I'm trying to do in this campaign is just a moment in a movement. You see, it's not really about fetishizing the ballot. You see, the ballot in and of itself is never a site of the liberation of oppressed people or the emancipation of subjugated people. It's social movements that bring power and pressure to bear and a candidate is simply one particular conduit, one particular vehicle for that. But you can't do it unless people in some ways experience what you all experienced in Occupy. A certain kind of shattering of a sleepwalking, a certain kind of awakening. Everybody awakes at different times for different reasons, responds to very different events, right? And we need that on a massive scale. And the history of America, in many ways, the history of the species is really the history of trying to convince people that any conformity to the status quo in terms of perception and praxis can be broken, can be interrupted. That was what was so magnificent about Occupy. It was a moment of interruption from the organized greed, the institutionalized hatred, the routinized indifference toward poor and working people. And when they're broad enough, then you get revolutions. And revolutions are just the sharing of wealth, the sharing of resources, the sharing of dignity, so that things become more broadly embracing of folk who had been excluded. That's what Martin King talked about, the kind of revolution in priorities, revolution in people gaining access to food, health care, quality education, quality housing, a host of other things that are so necessary. And uh, um, this, I mean, I, and I think that we've already in this campaign, you know, we've been out for about, oh, just a few weeks now, you know, and people are coming at us as if we are so powerful, we dictate what the next president's gonna be. And so we said, hey, wait, 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 settle down, settle down. We haven't even come out of the blocks yet. You watch us when we come out of the blocks and see what kind of threat we are to the status quo. We welcome the hostility of those who have been hostile to the plight of poor and working people. We welcome, I welcome the hostility of those who drop bombs on innocent people with drones and drop 
uh, have formed policies of militarism that lose sight of the humanity of wherever they are. It could be Palestinians on the West Bank. It could be landless peasants in Brazil. It could be Dalit people in India, wherever it is. That's the kind of tradition we come out of. You know, we do it with style and a smile. And uh, Dr. West, so talking about dismantling systems of oppression, um, I know that's one of your themes constantly. Um, I want to move over to mass incarceration for a second, if uh, if you can. Would you yes. use abolitionist principles to bring an end to mass incarceration? We saw during the 2020 uprisings, obviously inspired by the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and so many others, um, which were massive city after city across the country, even parts, you know, other cities in the world. Um, but they, it was, uh, they were unable, uh, to no fault of their own, to transform that outrage into the type of systemic reforms that are really needed to actually bring down the prison population that we have in this country. I'm just wondering what um, what you can do potentially to to try to change that and whether abolitionist principles would be the underlying you know theme of that, if, if possible. Well, there's no doubt that I am an abolitionist in the legacy of Frederick Douglass. He wanted the abolition of slavery. He didn't want a liberal version of slavery. Uh, Ida B. Wells Barnett, she's an abolitionist about Jim Crow. She didn't want a liberal vision of Jim Crow. I'm an abolitionist about poverty, homelessness, police brutality, police murder, mass incarceration. I'm an abolitionist about not having access to living wages. So I'm very much a supporter of the best of the trade union movements that are willing to straighten their backs out and confront greedy bosses. Now, what do we mean by abolition? So that, that's the crucial question in some way. As they presently are, they must be abolished. They must be fundamentally transformed, you see, so that mass incarceration does not have to take the form of dehumanized ways of rendering people in isolated cells with torture. That's what solidary confinement is. It is a form of torture. And when I turn to parts of the world, it could be a Finland or Sweden or Denmark, they've got prison systems, but they're systems of rehabilitation. They're systems that stay in contact with the humanity of precious folk, some of whom have done some things that we don't like. You got some murders and rapists and others there. You got some innocent folk there. You see, so I tell you, you know, if we win, I, I, I do win. You know, I'm gonna do some serious pardoning of Julian Assange and Edward Snowden and Mumi Abu Jamal and Leonard Pelkier and and Brother H. Rap Brown in Arizona. And I'm gonna ask Asada Shakur if she wants to come home. Why? Because these are innocent people. They are there for reasons that do not meet any kind of criteria of justice. They're not the only ones. I just mentioned them as kind of well-known persons in that regard. And it cuts across color, cuts across class, cuts across gender, cuts across sexual orientation. But so many of them actually have been freedom fighters who were subjugated, if not assassinated, like Fred Hampton and... um, and Bobby Hutton, who was assassinated just three days, two days after Brother Martin was assassinated, 17 years old. Never forget those folk. Never, ever forget those folk, you see. But you're absolutely right. I, uh, I, I take very seriously the legacy of Angela Davis and Sister Ruth Gilmore and, and others who have talked about abolition in this way. But what they really mean is 
fundamental transformation. A lot of people think abolition means just erase and eliminate. No, no, they're deeper thinkers than that. As they presently exist, they need to be abolished. Then you get constructed. What is in their place? We have to come up with alternative institutions and structures. And one of the ways you deal with mass incarceration is beginning with the background condition. That's why I began with abolition of poverty. You see, if we abolish poverty, it only takes really, good God almighty, about 190 billion. We got to spend 1.5 trillion every year on the wars. 56, 57 cent for every dollar goes to the military industrial complex. I want to head the empire in order to dismantle the empire. What does that mean? We don't need 800 military units around the world. We don't need a U.S. troops in over 125 countries. We don't need to be the superpower, the phallocentric empire that has total domination of every part of the globe. That's what Washington elites. No, we need to be a nation among nations. What does it mean to be a nation among nations? It means a collective community that relates to other collective communities, mediated with respect and not obsessed with domination and subjugation. NATO would have to go. You, because, you know, the recent, the recent uh, agreement that we just had now with Australia uh, to, get them to, to, to give them the nuclear submarines and so forth with the, U, with the UK, pushing France out, we won't get into all that. All of those are instrumentalities for U.S. global power, U.S. global hegemony. If our democracy is to survive, the empire must be dismantled. There's no way that we can spend trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars on troops and wars while our everyday lives of citizens get worse and worse and worse. And, and on that note, Dr. West, uh, you know, you brought up these endless wars. Um, and, you know, we don't hear much from the corporate media about bringing an end to the war in the Ukraine. Um, so what's your view on this proxy battle? America's seemingly sort of unended financial support, which obviously is making defense contractors exorbitantly rich. Absolutely. And the overall rhetoric around Russia. Um, and obviously in the context of let's not ignore the unimaginable horrors that are being wrought on the on the Ukrainian people, That's um, right. and and do you see what's going on in Ukraine as a sort of prelude to potential uh, more dangerous conflict in China? Absolutely, you know the great W. B. Du Bois, who's one of the grand truth tellers of the barbaric twentieth century. He wrote a piece in Chicago Defender in June 26, 1945. He was just leaving San Francisco as he witnessed the founding of the United Nations. And he said, I foresee a third world war with the U.S. trying to suppress Asia and put a stranglehold on Russia. It's 1945. And the priority right now of Washington elites is the attempt to suppress China with plans of a war against China and a stranglehold on Russia. Now, China and Russia 
have their own forms of domination and repression that we should not in any way downplay. We have to be morally consistent. I believe in being spiritually and morally consistent. But we also have to be honest about the context and the background conditions. So when you look at the United States that promised Gorbachev, NATO would not move one inch. And decades later, 13 former Soviet countries now part of NATO with missiles in Belarus and in Romania pointed toward Moscow. Now, if the United States empire had Russian or Chinese missiles in Canada or Mexico, they would be blown to smithereens the same day. That's how empires behave. I'm old enough to be around with the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962. We're right on the edge of nuclear exchange. Why? Because that's how empires behave. The United States is the mightiest empire in the history of the species. There's been 70 empires since the species emerged. The United States is 68. And empires are about like Alexander the Great. Conquest. It's about power. It's about subjugation. Now, the Russian Empire is an empire, too, but it's very weak. There's no equivalence between the Russian Empire and the, and, and the U.S. Empire. There's no doubt about that. The invasion of Ukraine was criminal. No doubt about that. The same way the invasion of Iraq was criminal. The occupation, criminal. Empires do in, involve themselves in criminal activity, commit war crimes. But the provocation of the American empire through NATO, and NATO was an instrumentality of US world, US global power, you see, that it pushed the Russian empire against the wall. They were promised that we would stop, and it kept getting further and further, it pushed them against the wall. That's why the war in so many ways is the proxy war, as you rightly say, between America and Russia, between the US empire and the Russian empire. With, now, the Russian Empire has nuclear uh, warheads, but there's no comparison in terms of the military might of the U.S. Empire vis-a-vis -vis the Russian Empire. And the pressure Ukrainian brothers and sisters get killed, crushed in the middle. That's why I call for a ceasefire. We've got to stop the war. And then we've got to come to the diplomatic table and say, look, bring in, not just from Ukraine and Russia, but we got to have a presidential U.S. Can you imagine if U.S. president comes in and says, I want to tell the truth about how this war came into being. And it begins with a critique of the American empire. Not because I'm anti-American, because I'm pro-truth. If, if it was wrong, I wouldn't say it. If it wasn't truthful, I wouldn't say it. And the same would be, of course, I've got my critiques of, of, of Putin and the Russians, too. Indeed, I've got my morality, indeed. But we bring in the Chinese, we bring in the African elites and others who want a ceasefire that would then be, begin a diplomatic process. And it would be, and of course, the Russian troops would have to leave. We'd have to talk about what kinds of properties and lands and, and, and would be given back to Ukraine. And then the United States would have to promise to pull back. And of course, I call for the disbanding of NATO, but that's a much longer project. I think we got to dismantle all these instrumentalities of the American empire. Because what is happening is, and this is where the issue of uh, both Trump and Biden come into play, because with Trump, you're pushing the American empire toward its second civil war internally. With Biden, you're pushing toward a third world war externally with 
nuclear exchange being a possibility and the pressure Ukrainians caught in the middle. I think the preoccupation right now of Biden and his foreign policy elite is still China. It really is. Even his internal project in terms of uh, infrastructure and new kinds of jobs and so forth, which is fine, but it really is an attempt to, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a second step toward preparing the country toward war with China, because it has to do with, with, with various forms of excluding Chinese technology, various forms of excluding access to Chinese resources. And you know, that's, that's, uh, that, that, that raises the question of the Third World War that Du Bois was talking about, suppression of Asia. Du Bois didn't say China, but he said suppression of Asia. This is 1945. This is before the Chinese Revolution. And he said the strangleholding of Russia. And so uh, if you're anti-war and pro-humanity, and especially when you're pro-humanity, and again, as a Christian, I got my deep biases. I began with the least of these, those slash don't call everyday people. I began with ordinary people, in the language of James Cleveland, you see. And so therefore I'm looking at the world through the lens of those friends who don't call the wretched of the earth. That's just who I am. And that's how I roll. And that's how I plan to go down. I gotta be true to my calling, you see. I don't have a brand like politicians. 99% of them have a brand. I don't have no goddamn brand. That's a market strategy. I got a calling. I got a cause. That's very different. You know what I mean? It's the difference between Curtis Mayfield and a lot of the artists these days. I got to get my brand to get my need so I can sell my record. No, mother hucker. What is your calling in your music? Have you heard of John Coltrane? Have you heard of Curtis Mayfield? Do you know who Donnie Hathaway is when we ain't got to Aretha Franklin yet? Right. Indeed. Uh, I want to switch real quick to something. Thank you for that, uh, Dr. West. Uh, that affects everyday people, where we're yeah. all kind of caught in the middle. Uh, I I I did something recently that uh, a lot of New Yorkers do. I moved to Georgia, <laughs> and it's hot ATL? down here, ATL. Uh, right outside of ATL, sir. Yep, right ah, outside A, right outside God, the A. God bless you, man. Now it's hot down here. Uh, no, hot and as, more ways than one. Hot more but, ways than one. Hot, hot more ways than one. In the way, in the in the way we have to unfortunately talk about uh, last three days being the hottest on a record in this planet. You know, uh, climate scientists, of course, have warned, uh, warned that we're running out of time to address all the environmental challenges uh, before these uh, ecological changes become irreversible. Uh, something we've covered on this show a few times with fossil fuel giants raking in massive profits in recent years and Congress effectively providing cover for that industry. Uh, how can we bring about the systemic changes needed to save our collective futures, to save our planet so that we can just be regular hot? <laughs> yeah, was, yeah, that, that's exactly right. I mean, part of it is, is that, again, you go back to Martin King from ATL, you know, how do you engage in a revolution in your priorities? See, when you have both parties so tied to fossil fuel industries, uh, so tied to the old school of coal and, 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 and gas and oil that is not open to new forms of, it could be solar energy, a variety of different forms that would try to address the ecological catastrophe that is already taking place. It's already in process. So for me, it goes back in so many ways to just organize greed. 
And the organized greed at the top, uh, like a fossil fuel industry that's preoccupied with short-term profit, we're right back to predatory capitalist processes here. And when you buy off your politicians, when you colonize a whole political class or political group of, of elected officials, you, the voices of the people can't get through. You can't get through. I mean, look at look at Biden himself. You know, he can't make a deal with Manchin when it comes to voting rights because he doesn't want to touch filibuster, but he wouldn't be there if it were not for black people, especially black women who voted for him. But when it comes to the debt ceiling agreement, he can make a deal with Manchin so that the pipeline still goes through. Ecological collapse is still promoted. You're still messing with the sacred land of indigenous peoples. You're still shattering the lives of working people, disproportionately white and vanilla, but still pressures in, in their own way, it's fairly, it's fairly clear what your priorities are. You see. And so in that sense, again, you know, what I'm talking about as somebody just tied to this particular campaign is just a moment in a movement, a wave in an ocean. Moments of interruption, just like Occupy was a moment of interruption. Usually, if they can't deal with it by co-optation, they deal with it by repression. That's how ruling classes behave. But ruling classes, though mighty, are not almighty. In the end, the people will have the last word. Now, it might be just the people singing a song sometimes, like when we're in jail. But the people will have the last word unless you wipe out the whole species. Then the cockroaches will be singing. They'll probably be saying the blues, but they'll have the last word, too, so that we never want the ruling class or the power elites to think that somehow they are completely in control. Even as that doomsday clock moves 89 seconds, 88 seconds, 86 seconds, slowly but surely. And that's why I do want to really salute and applaud you all in talking about the music, because uh, in the end for the human species, it's really the musicians who are the vanguard of the species. You need something to get beyond words. You remember those wonderful moments in T.S. Eliot's Burton, Burton Norton, he talks about the words crack, they slip, they slide, they won't stay still. And Tony Morrison, beloved, says, I'm looking for a sound that breaks the back of words. And what is really beyond language? What's beyond words? Sound silence, love, and light. And the greatest musician, I ain't talking about the mediocre ones just out there with a brand, just creating some noise. I'm talking about some serious musicians because I see that hip hop will save America. I know you're talking about some great hip hop, courageous, visionary musicians who have kept alive the best of the musical traditions, especially in the US empire. See, I want to reintroduce America to the best of itself. And one of the ways of doing that is to go back to Delta, Mississippi, but the blues mm -hmm. artists. One of the ways of doing that is the rhythm and blues artists. One of the ways of doing that is the great hip hop artists. One of the ways of doing that are the great jazz musicians. And what are they about? They're about first catastrophe. That's what the blues is about. Catastrophe lyrically expressed. Nobody loves me but my mama, she might be driving too. That's the blues, that's BB, Strange Fruit. Of Billy Holiday of Baltimore City and the Jewish brother Maripol. That means begin with catastrophe. Part of the problem of American politics is they haven't had enough black musical tradition shot through because musical tradition begins with catastrophe. They reduce it to problems. That's a managerial mentality. You see, 
the, Brother Floyd Jr., that's not a racial problem. That's a catastrophe. Mass incarceration is not a problem. It's a catastrophe. Slavery, Jim Crow, lynching, catastrophe. Same would be true for our trans vulnerable folk who are viciously attacked. That's not a problem. That's catastrophe when greedy bosses push workers into hardly livable conditions. That's catastrophe. So our musicians at their greatest always begin with catastrophe. Honestly confronted, lyrically expressed, artistically transfigured. So that the last word is always hope, care, love, compassion, moan, groan, cry, something over against the catastrophe. But then you got to have a different conception of time. It don't mean a spang if it ain't got that swaying. What is the swaying that Duke Ellington talk about? He's talking about a conception of time that always authorizes a better future, no matter how grim the present moment is. You get to a slash stone, they say, ow, oh, what is so but the sharing of a soothing sweetness against the backdrop of grim catastrophe? Keep sharing that sweetness, sharing that grin, sharing that upbeat sensibility when you ain't got no evidence whatsoever that things are going to get better. But when you sing that song in a club, in a church, in a mosque, in a temple, on the block, in the alley, somehow you're feeling better about yourself. You straighten your back up and be a force for good and then be improvisational, which is not dogmatic or doctrinaire because it comes from a variety of different sources, comes from a variety of different folks. Even folk these days come up to me talking, Brother West, Brother West, what you think about our white allies? White allies? What What you talking about? You mean Gregory playing the drum for Sly Stone's a white brother? He ain't no white ally. He's in the band. Bill Evans playing on the piano and Miles Davis quintet. He's in the motherfucking band. He ain't no white, white ally. Now we're going to have the white allies solo. No, train is finished. They moving to Bill Evans. They're in the band, they're human beings who choose out of integrity and honesty to be forces for good and concerned about truth and justice. It doesn't make any difference what color, gender, sexual orientation. When Sarah Bond sits out there on the piano, Aretha sits out there on the piano, there ain't no woman ally, no. She's in the band, she's leading the band, like Mary Lou Williams. It's a human thing. If the black musical tradition, which for me is the greatest tradition of the modern world in terms of artistic creativity, spiritual fortitude, and moral courage, self-confidence without self-righteousness, that's what we need. If that spills over in American politics, hey, it's a new day. It's a new day. We ain't got the we ain't got the J. Cole yet. I mean, you know, we, 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 we ain't got the KRS one and Yasko. Hey, we ain't got the Tupac yet. We ain't got the Biggie yet. That's the younger generation. I'm old school, but I love those young brothers and sisters. But it's the same tradition. And it cuts across. M and M ain't no white ally. That motherfucker's in the band. Ask Dre about that. <laughs> Dr. West, I do remember, I forget who it was, uh, saying that the first people that the fascists come after are the artists. Right, because they're the ones that speak the truth that they could get into people's souls, get into people's hearts, and everything you're saying just speaks just speaks to that. So uh, we deeply appreciate it. Um, There were some two things that you mentioned previously, Doctor West. You talked about um, speaking the truth, and you also mentioned um, pardoning potentially Julian Assange if I guess he gets comes to the U.S. gets prosecuted and convicted. Right? 
Um, I do want to talk about that because that's been a hallmark of sort of like um, most of our career in in journalism and over the last 20 years is taking the the truth, people who are speaking the truth and um, crushing them through the Justice Department, imprisoning them, making it unable for them to mount any type of defense. Um, Meanwhile, the people that they're exposing are out free. The war crimes that are exposed, uh, none of that gets addressed. It just continues. It's just like they're just trying to put it all under the rug. Um, What, first of all, just what is your reaction to what's happening to Julian Assange? And also, what would you do as president um, when it comes to disclosures of these magnitude? Um, because, um, you know, for, for people like us who are journalists, um, these are people who are trying to help the American public, help the world, yet they're being crushed. Absolutely. And again, fundamentally, it has to do with a commitment to truth and justice. It's a very subversive, dangerous thing when you talk about commitment to truth and justice. You know, Herman Melville, probably the greatest American novelist alongside Tony Morrison and Faulkner, used to say, truth is the jagged edge. It comes at others and it also comes at oneself. So if America really wants to know the truth about itself, the settler colonialism, the treatment of indigenous peoples, the slavery, the white brothers, working class subjugated by bosses, women, and so forth. Same is true in our foreign policy. So I had to say, first, Brother Julian Assange, as president, I want to thank you for exposing the truth about U.S. war crimes. And I want to be able to pursue that revelation of that truth to ensure that the United States does not participate, promote war crimes again. Never again. Or support other nations that themselves are enacting war crimes. That's why the Middle East becomes very important. Billions of dollars we give to to Israel. It had nothing to do with anti-Jewish hatred, anti-Jewish sentiment. It has to do with war crimes against precious Palestinian people and U.S. planes and U.S. equipment being used for those war crimes. It's a moral and spiritual issue. It would be exactly the same if there was a Palestinian occupation to precious Jewish brothers and sisters. I'd say exactly the same thing, have the same moral intensity, same spiritual intensity. Why? Because it's wrong. And therefore, I would want to celebrate Julian Assange. I'm glad that you exposed this. We need to know what is being done in our name. American people need to know that and then no longer engage in that kind of activity. That's why I'm not talking about pardoning. It really matters. You know, the same would be true with our political prisoners in the Black Freedom Movement. They were just trying to expose the truths about the various crimes committed against Black people. People didn't want to come to terms with it. It was too much. They wanted to live in denial. They wanted to act like they were innocent. James Baldwin said, you can't claim innocence when you're the the authorizers of the devastation. And people think, oh, that's anti-American. No, it's not. It's said by Americans. James Baldwin is as American as the Ku Klux Klan. Just like Jazz is as American as the U.S. neo-Nazis. One's the worst, the other's the best. Trump is as American as he can be. He's the worst. That's what gangster America looks like. And gangster comes in all colors, comes in all genders. I got some gangs, a whole lot of gangs in me, actually. Mm-hmm. Thank God somebody <laughs> praying for me. 
somebody holding back every day. I got to get up and die, kind of push that gangster back in order for some love and, and compassion to flow. That's what it is to be a Christian, you know, so that in that sense, it's just a matter of saying, hey, let's just be honest. Now, if it's the case that America does not have the capacity for the truth about itself, then that's what Eugene O'Neill believed. He was our greatest playwright, then the Iceman coming. He said, Americans don't, Americans don't have the capacity. They've already invested themselves so deeply into innocence, the city on the hill, the beacon of the last beacon of hope for the for, for humankind. And once they found out the truth about themselves and show what happened to indigenous peoples and the lynching of black peoples and the vicious wars against working peoples monstered by bosses, their own private military units and so forth, they're shattered. And that just means we didn't grow up. We grew rich, we grew powerful, we never ever grew up. Now, I don't believe that that's the case. I think that America can still grow up, but who knows? I might be naive too. Who knows? But I'm gonna go down swinging. I'm gonna go down swinging because as black and African as I am, I'm still a product of the American empire. And so is Luther Vandross. And so are the Delphonics and the Dramatics and the Emotions and the Jones girls. But they just happen to be on the chocolate side of the empire. That's where I come from. Yes, absolutely. Love it. Dr. West, uh, as you were as you were speaking there, uh, one phrase came to mind, which uh, I think could sort of encapsulate uh, your whole campaign here, gangster of love. Oh, I like that. Gangster of I love, right? Like I don't know, it just came to me. I just felt like sharing that. Got to get this no, guy on the campaign. No, no, I gangster. like that, oh, brother. Good. In fact, there must be a song somewhere down there. I, I was, I, maybe, I, there should be. There should be. I'm thinking. Because be. um, Coltrane's Love Supreme would always acknowledge the gangster proclivities that he would have. You know what I mean? And, you know, a, a, a saint ain't nothing but a sinner who looks at the world through the lens of the heart. And therefore, a gangster of love looks at the world through the lens of love, but know that he, got, he or she has gangster proclivities so that it keeps the self-righteousness down. I like that, though. Oh, yes, indeed, indeed, indeed. We have to call Andre 3000 we, and say, brother, we, we want you to write a song. On we, we we create slogans around here, man. No, you ain't. Rochette and I uh, might want to dabble in some speed writing. I don't know. I'm just going to, we'll, we'll talk about that. Let's go. Uh, and this is not the last time we're going to have a continual conversation. So you all can keep me honest and keep me accountable as I, in real time, go through this process. You know what I mean? Because I stand in need of that kind of accountability. And you can't be a jazz man in the world of politics or in the life of the mind if you're not willing to learn and listen. That's right. There you go. Right. And 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 talk to West. I um, this next question here. I went back and forth with whether to ask it, but I think that um, the times have changed. The stigma isn't what it once was. And we have Congress actively investigating uh, what they're calling UAPs. I'm, I'm sure you're likely have heard about the stuff, these unexplained anomalous phenomena. The, we have the, the Pentagon releasing um, 
once classified footage that were that were caught on uh, U.S. warplanes, weapons systems. Um, and most recently, we have a whistleblower, as we were talking about whistleblowers, who came from the intelligence department uh, just two or three weeks ago, um, alleging that the U.S. government has, you know, intact and partially or partially intact pieces of crafts from somewhere else. Um, I'm wondering if you become president, you know, what, first of all, what's your stance on this? Do you believe in extraterrestrial life? And um, if you became president, what is, what would be your policy on what's, what's sort of considered disclosure, disclosure to the American public about this, uh, about these subjects? You know, my basic uh, proclivity is toward transparency. Very much. So now I guess I couldn't be dogmatic about that because it, it, there might be certain very, very, very unique circumstances under which transparency might undercut uh, of the, uh, um, the security of the country. But for the most part, I would be committed to transparency. And you see, I believe in the mystery of things. I'm not really a mystic because a mystic oftentimes believes in some kind of reconciliation with a oneness, capital O, and that's a larger philosophical issue. But the mystery of things has something to do with our radical humility and fallibility in the face of what is. And I, as a human being, I just think we always have blind spots. And therefore, in the end, there's a whole host of things that go beyond our rational categories at the moment, at the moment. And so I in no way rule out the extraterrestrial objects. Maybe objects might not be in the right word, but that might be too tied to our vocabulary. It could be something else, phenomena, whatever you want to use. You see what I mean? I just think we have to be open to that. We really do. Uh, and of course, I believe, you know, evidence is very important, but evidence tends to be underdetermined. See, evidence is subject to multiple interpretations. It's always in clashing interpretations. But uh, we have, but there's no doubt in my mind that given the levels of secrecy and the obsession with the clandestine in presidential administrations before I come along, that there's a whole lot of revelation and that needs to take place. There's a lot of dis disclosure that needs to take place. That's that, that's my hypothesis, very much so. And Dr. West, we appreciate, appreciate the time. We just have a few more questions. Um, sure, one, sure. You're obviously one of the most, you have been one of the most distinguished political th thinkers of, you know, of our time, mm -hmm. uh, especially in my generation. Um, we've, over the last 20 years or so, we've had the illegal invasion of Iraq, which you mentioned, the massive expansion of the war economy, which has trickled down to our society in terms of militarized police and That's other, right. you know, in, and in other ways, too. We've had our forever wars. We've had America um, also just taking over swaths of the North Africa and other parts of the world. The rise of the surveillance state, historic wealth uh, concentration and just so much more. So the, the last uh, few decades, in your view, what do you think that says about the state of this country, the empire, does that in a way signal that it's crumbling or do you think it's fighting within itself to maintain power? Do, what do you, what do you make of these last 20 years, which have been um, especially, you know, tumultuous? Yeah. Yeah. 
You know, I do think there's much to what Brother Malcolm said when he said chickens come home to roost, uh, that the planet strikes back. Uh, uh, the colonies of the empire strike, strike back. Those who've been victimized by genocide, white supremacy, strike back. And that strike back generates backlash. You think of the great Nina Simone's backlash blues. And the backlash is trying to hold on to a past that's fading and fearful of a new world that's in the making. And at the same time, the very folk who could make the new world, almost like Noah, Noah's Ark, where he gets drunk on the eve of reconstruction. See, right when it's time for the new breakthrough, he's flying high in the friendly skies with no clothes on. You know what I mean? He said, no, come on, brother. We get ready to make our breakthrough. Man, you drank it and walk around with nothing. Oh, man, I ain't got nothing against nudity, but the biblical story is, is that you got to be ready. You got to prepare yourself. Shakespeare says rightness is all. You got to be ready. You got to be prepared. And so right when the, the newness can break through, see, Occupy was about newness. And the response of Brother Floyd Jr. was about the breakthrough of newness. And my campaign in its own very small and unique way is about newness. And newness is the recovery of the best in order to create something novel. See, every novelty has something about it that's not novel because it's based on the past. So you have to be base something on the best of the past, but the past needs to be transcended in the name of vision and courage and organization and courage I mean, and, and, and determination. In the last 20 years, the uh, those who are nostalgic about making America great and so forth and so on, they're panicked. They're paranoid. They're scared. They're intimidated. Now, many of them are also economically marginalized. That's why I plan to go straight into Trump country. One out of nine of Trump supporters supported my dear brother Bernie Sanders. They know they're not going to get what they, what, what they need from the Democratic Party because they're too tied to Wall Street and Pentagon and Silicon Valley. So they follow a neo-fascist Pied Piper. I've got to go to them and say, look, Brother Jethro and Jed and Sister jo sister Dorothy, I'm a black brother, you might be white. I care about you. I want your children to live lives of dignity. I know you might hate me, but I don't hate you back. Hey, I ain't into that kind of thing. I've been beyond the hatred and revenge. I'm a love warrior that goes all the way back to Harriet Tubman and Martin King and others. I'm concerned about you. Try to get beyond scapegoating the most vulnerable, the immigrants and the gay brothers and lesbians and trans and blacks and Jews and Muslims and Arabs. Confront the most powerful, quit scapegoating the most vulnerable. They're not the ones who are responsible for your social misery. I'm concerned about your social misery, but you need to look up. We need solidarity. Let's learn something from Fred Hampton. He talked about the rainbow before they shot him, before they killed him. Jesse picked up on it a little later, but rainbow is what? Solidarity is just like Count Basie's band. It's just like Mary Lou Williams' orchestra. Raising your voices with dignity in order to generate a collective performance that leaves the world a little better than you found it.
that's what we need in that sense. But the last 20 years are frightening because when the chickens really do come home to roost and you reap what you sow with all of the evil and hatred and greed and domination and people resisting begin to come back in the backlash to try to reproduce all of that hatred and that greed, that's how you end up losing the planet. That's how you end up losing the species. That's what ecological catastrophe and nuclear catastrophes are all about. That's how you end up losing all of your democratic possibilities. And even fascism begins to look inadequate as a name because it's new forms of surveillance, new forms of domination, new forms of subjugation to keep what? Keep the people scared. Keep the people full of fear. And what breaks the back of fear? The same thing that breaks the back of words in Toni Morrison's Beloved. Only love, only light, only the great music, the great art can teach you what it is to be a courageous human being in the face of death and dread and despair and domination and dogma. That's spiritual as well as social, as economic as well as existential. It is personal as well as political. It's holistic. And that's exactly what you all talk about every week in all your award-winning documents and episodes and so forth while we write. Where is the love? That's Donnie Hathaway's question, Roberta Flack. Where is the love? Where is it? Marvin Gaye, who loves the children? What's going on? Stevie Wonder, love and need a love. We need to take precautionary measures because the hatred is killing all of us. Stevie, we hear you, brother. You seeing something that we don't see. You're supposed to be blind. We more blind than you are. Oh, what a people. What a great tradition. That's what you all represent in terms of dealing with the great music connected to life. Mm. And it's not just a black thing, but I always begin on the chocolate side of town. As you should. They better listen to the gangster love over here, preaching. <laughs> Come on now. Come on brother with Chris it. Chris laid it down, brother. Come on Maddie. with it. <laughs> I'll pick it up. <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. I, uh, the, all I have left, uh, sir, uh, is uh, one question. We have a, uh, I, I produced another program. Good, uh, good show, good fans and, uh, and friends of, of us and you specifically. You've been mentioned there. It's a, it's a program <laughs> called, and I'll use your vernacular, Unhucking the Republic. Ooh. Okay. Took it now. Shook Come on now. It. Look so, so our, our friend Max, who hosts over at uh, UNFTR and shouts to 99, and of course, I'm also appeared on that show every now and then. Max wants to know, uh, he submits this question, and if you'd be so kind to... Uh, Absolutely. Uh, Third-party runs have failed to garner major electoral victories, especially in presidential elections, but they can help surface critical issues that major parties suppress when there are no countervailing proposals or pressures. What's the biggest issue you hope to bring to light and what makes the Green Party apparatus more beneficial to bringing these ideas to light than what, as you say, your dear brother Bernie Sanders was able to accomplish inside the big D Democratic machine on a larger scale? Yes. Well, let's see, that's a tough question. It really is. But I would say this, when you look down through the, through the annals of time in U.S. history, the history of the American empire, the last third party to win 
was one by a brother named Abe Lincoln. That was a third party victory because the two parties before had been so tied to a barbaric system called slavery that they could only come up with little liberal versions of slavery. They didn't want to abolish it, you know. Give them a, a break on Saturday afternoon rather than seven days. Oh my God, I feel so good. We got liberal slavery now. It's still barbaric. It's still dehumanizing. And the Liberty Party was the third party in the 1840s and 50s trying to bring, bring the issue to bear. Then John Brown came along and said, these parties ain't going to do nothing. It's going to end in blood. And he got $600,000 from a black woman named Mary Ellen Pleasant, who's known as the godmother of human rights in California. $600,000 in 1850. He had the note in his pocket when he was executed. Black, white, working with Douglas, working with Harriet Tubman. He said, the system does not have the capacity to actually undergo change and transformation to come to terms with this catastrophe of slavery. And so third party emerged, Republican party, here's Abe Lincoln and he walking around, he really don't know fully, fundamentally what's going on because he gives the first inaugural address. What does he say? I want to make a compromise. It's all right to have the South keep black people in slavery in perpetuity. I just want to compromise. And Frederick Douglass said, who is this slave hound from Illinois that wants to keep my people enslaved in perpetuity in the name of compromise? That ain't no compromise. That's being deferential to barbarity, revolting barbarity and shameless hypocrisy. That's Frederick Douglass. Now, of course, later on, they're going to be Ace Boone Coe. They're going to be good friends because Lincoln had to grow. He said, OK, I'm for emancipation, but send them all to Haiti. No, 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 they didn't help build the country. And he changes his mind again. White side of town, straight out of Kentucky. No college, but at least two colleges went through him. He got the Bible in one part of his, in, in, in one side of his pocket, he got Shakespeare in the other. He's growing. It was a third party that had to do that. It was a third party, and they still had the Civil War. And he still continued to change his mind. Next thing you know, he believed black folk could vote. Once the 200,000 black folk joined the army and break the back of the Confederate, Confederate army, you see, joined the Union army and break the back of the Confederate army, you see, Lincoln's still growing. So when people say, well, third parties have done this and that, that might be true for a certain historical period. But don't think that every historical period has the same dynamics. Sometimes you got breakthroughs. We don't know when. Now, I'm not going to be, you know, audacious and say, well, I know this. Is I don't know. I'm swinging. I'm fighting. I'm doing all that I can to make sure that we can try to save the best of the planet, save the best of our tradition, put the focus on poor and working people, not just in the United States but around the world, and then pass it on to the younger generation. That's all that one can do, you see. That's what it is to be a jazz man. I'm going to play my song until the very end, the last note on my saxophone. I know it's a European instrument created by Adolf Sachs in Belgium. That's all right. Charlie Parker and Coltrane Africanized that instrument in such a way that he could use that instrument, and they could use it to do what? Spread more love. 
spread more light, spread more joy, spread more community, spread more deep sense of what it is to be human. What a great set of standards for anybody. That's my tradition. It's a great one. Dr. West, I appreciate that. Just one last follow-up and I will let you go. Um, Bernie Sanders famously didn't go on attack against Joe Biden um, during the, the last primary. And he held back, I think, particularly because he was he valued their friendship, their relationship. Um, he didn't want to go that route. Obviously, you're coming from a different side of things because you're you're vying for the Green Party nomination. Um, so it might be a little easier for you. But do you um, plan to go on the attack um, against your, your your opponents, whoever they are? And also, what do you say to the people who maybe listen to a lot of corporate media who say that you are potentially weakening Joe Biden and setting him up to lose to, uh, you know, a fascist, a Donald Trump, a Ron DeSantis or somebody like that. Um, so, so, you know, what do you say uh, to those accusations that you can, you can see coming once this thing really starts getting right. uh, in the nitty gritty? Right. I mean, one challenge always is, is that when you speak your fallible truths, it has all kinds of consequences and effects beyond your control. And that's just the way it is. You know, it's like Socrates trying to tell the truth, gets condemned, he drinks the hemlock and dies. You know what I mean? Jesus trying to tell the truth, run the money changers out of the temple, put him on, put him on the cross. You see what I mean? That's the highest, highest, highest standards. But truth telling tends to be an activity that gets one in trouble. I love Brother Bernie. I love him forever. He's my very, very dear brother. We've had deep agreements. We've had deep disagreements. He never went after Obama. He just refused to do it. He and I, we break bread. He said, I know that you were going to say that about Barack, but I'm glad you held back because I know as long as I'm in his campaign and I know his campaign is not going after Obama, then I hold back. Now, that's, well, what is your personal view, Brother West? Well, let me tell you about this brother who out for Wall Street rather than drop drones on innocent people and extends the surveillance state and the national security state and so forth and so on. I still love the brother and his family. Got to tell the truth about him. And Bernie would say, I'm just so glad you held off on that, Brother West, because I, I, we in the campaign have a, a consensus. We don't attack Obama. I said, oh, okay, I'm going to play in your band. And you want a little military music there? I'm not going to play my blue notes. I'm just going to play some military notes for you. But I can tell you this, when I get out of your band, I'm going right back to Charlie Parker's band, and it's going to be blue. It's going to be blue notes. They're going to be bent. They're going to be flattened and everything else. And so now that I'm running my own campaign, I got to tell the truth. I tell the truth about Biden, tell the truth about Obama, tell the truth about Trump, tell the truth about whoever it is. And that means, of course, as well, I may even end up upsetting some of my supporters. You see, because if I tell the truth and I have certain agreements with them, then they say, well, we don't ever say anything positive about any of your political folks. But that's the rules of politicians. That's not me. That's not me. If Biden's relief bill cuts child poverty 50%, I celebrate it. I celebrate that. It's about the children. It's not about him. It's not about me. But then when he lets the bill expire and the child poverty goes right back up, he just lets me know he didn't have a deep commitment to it. And I speak that truth again. You see. And the same would be true with, with his militarism, you know, on steroids. I, it, it's going to come down. Does that make him look 
weaker as a candidate if he's facilitating war crimes on the West Bank and can't say a mumbling word when 550 Palestinian children are killed in 50 days? They want me to hold my peace? No! I wasn't raised like that. I wasn't reared like that. Those babies have the same value as my own babies. That's who I am. Well, you got to control yourself, Brother West. Well, you want me to be a certain kind of politician. You got the wrong black man. I'm a free black man. I'm a Jesus-loving free black man. And I'm going to speak my truth until the end. So in that sense, you can imagine, you know, it cuts a number of different ways. The truth, again, is a very dangerous thing. You can't play with it. No, no, it's not the truth about our own selves. You know what I mean? If we try to tell the truth about our own lives and only accent the best and don't want to say nothing about the worst, we're going to be stuck in adolescence. Well, we know that we won't be stuck in adolescence listening to you. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I I speak for my brothers here that we always learn uh, a great deal when we speak with you. And uh, you also are... uh, quite an inspiration to us and to all of the supporters and followers you mentioned. And I think uh, I, I don't have any other questions. Uh, I just want to say uh, thanks again for joining us at Newsbeat. Uh, we've, uh, we will keep in conversation. Absolutely. With you, no, we right. We'll take you up on that. Um, Absolutely. We know Absolutely. that our, our, our friends, our commingled audiences uh, are very in tune with, uh, with these uh, issues and the things that you're uh, fighting for. And so we, are very happy to be able to spread uh, spread the word. I salute y'all, gentlemen. Love do we have anything love. else for the brother uh, uh, and gangster of love, Doctor Cornell West? Love. Yeah. <laughs> anything I else? Good. I was gonna. I was gonna. I was gonna just ask one last thing. I th- you pretty much answered. It's been threaded through all your answers, but just on the importance of it seems you know the power of love is sort of through your entire uh, campaign here. Uh, so if you just want to share um, a little more about just the importance of that in who you are, what you're trying to do, and how critical would do you see that as trying to accomplish what, what, what you're suggesting, which is really a revolution of the entire fundamental undergirding of everything that this, you know, has been built up over the over the past two centuries or so? No, I, I think it's true that, um, you know, the power of love can help attenuate the love of power. Power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. And by corruption, I don't mean that uh, even when you overcome it, there aren't elements of the corruption that are still inside of you. So the power of love never eliminates the love of power, but it attenuates it. It pushes it back. It tries to minimize and lessen it. And that power of love is the best expression of those moments of interruption we've been talking about in the face of the hatred, the greed, the domination, the envy, resentment, subjugation, and so forth, you see. And uh, um, thank God that uh, every culture and civilization we know has always put a premium on different forms of love. It's, 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 it's the one key that opens the door to the ultimate reality of different cultures. The yearning to get beyond just 
the uh, the narrow and the parochial and to get deeper into what it means to empty oneself and be vulnerable to really learn how to give and receive and be able to revel in the highest levels of, of, of just human existence. You can call it spiritual, moral, but it has political consequences as well. It's sensual as well. I mean, it, it all has all of those different aspects and facets to it. And when you look at politics from that point of view, you cutting against the grain. Oh, you cutting against the grain in a mighty way. Very much so. And the regular politician would say, well, why don't you just go in the corner and sing your song and just be an entertainer rather than trying to talk about institutions and structures and revolution and fundamental transformation. You say, I am entering politics precisely because I have such respect for those musicians that are in the club and on the alley or in the church or the mosque or the temple or the synagogue because they wrestling with the deepest forms of what it means to be human. And they provide sonic and acoustic expressions that are tied to not just love, but beauty. And beauty is inseparable from tear. What does real kids say about beauty? Beauty ain't nothing but the first moment in which we begin to wrestle with tear. So that beauty is not some abstraction, it's tied to a response to snuffing out the best of humanity. Same is true with the holy. You can be secular and still have a deep sense of the sacred without even believing in God. You can be that little precious baby and her needs are sacred. You can be the most radical atheist in the world because it's a way of acknowledging that something is very uh, of high value is worthy of sacrifice, is worthy of serving to make sure that precious baby can flower and flourish. It could be your own, it could be other children and so forth. But thank God for the artists, thank God for the musicians especially. And that's why Plato not only banned nearly all the poets and musicians, but he also banned the flute and only allowed the lyre, the one string because the flute might start sounding like John Coltrane's My Favorite Things. Oh, shucks now. Uh-oh, uh-oh, the flute in might trouble now. sound like Herbie, Herbie Lost. Ooh, there it is, there yeah. it is. No, we start with the flute. We start with the music. Right. We start with the power of love and then follow through and see what happens. All right. right. That. We appreciate Incredible. you, Dr. West. We appreciate you having your voice um in this this campaign obviously most americans are dissatisfied with the the options um so it, it it's a welcome entrance into this race and uh, we'll keep in touch again thank you for being so gracious with your time and we really appreciate it uh love y'all love you I am Brother Cornell West. This is Chris Hedges. I'm Rosa Clemente. Hey, what's up? This is Chuck D, Public Enemy Prophet of Rage. And this is Newsbeat. This is a Many Faces Media production. Many Faces! You sick for this one. Sick for this one.